Okay, welcome to CLTV, a broadcast of Educator Innovator, powered by the National Writing Project. This episode is being recorded on October 24th, 2018, and is part of the 2018-19 Marginal Syllabus Project. Marginal Syllabus is a project that convenes and sustains equity conversations in the margins of texts online using the digital annotation tool, Hypothesis. I'm Joe Dillon, and I'm from the Denver Writing Project, I'm a co-founder of the Marginal Syllabus Project, along with Ramey Collier, and I'll be your host for this conversation. Uh, we've got a great panel here to discuss this month's reading, which is titled, Electing to Heal, Trauma, Healing, and Politics in Classrooms, by Ontario Garcia and Elizabeth Dutro. We're excited to welcome Ontario, who's, who's the co-author, to tonight's show, as well as Sarah Woodard, who's a reader respondent. So, Let's start with everyone taking a moment just to introduce themselves. Hi, everybody. My name is Ontario Garcia. I'm an assistant professor at Stanford University. Uh, used to be out in Joe's neck of the woods uh, at Colorado State, uh, and I'm excited to be in conversation with all of you today. Hi everyone, I'm Sarah Woodard. I am from Denver, Colorado, and I teach high school, primarily 11th and 12th graders, in Denver Public Schools at um, Collegiate Prep Academy. And I'm also um, on the, um, involved in uh, one of the co-directors of the Denver Writing Project and on the National Writing Project Board of Directors. I'm excited to be here today and engage in this conversation. And my name is Ramey Kalir. I'm an assistant professor of information and learning technologies at the University of Colorado in Denver. And I'm also one of the co-founders and facilitators of the Marginal Syllabus Project. Terrific. So we always like to start these conversations hearing from the author first. So Ontario, would you mind sharing just a little bit about the background of the writing of this piece? Yeah, so uh, first of all, I, I definitely want to reiterate, I'm really grateful to get to talk about this work with all of you and with the people who are looking and engaging with this work. Um, I wrote it uh, alongside my co-author, Elizabeth Dutro, and I know she can't join us today, but I'm also really grateful to be able to get to learn alongside her. She's been a really powerful writer and thinker with me on this. Um, but I want to I be clear that the reason we wrote this piece was from a couple of places of feeling stuck. Uh, and this article was essentially birthed in the days after uh, the 2016 presidential election. Um, if you listen to Joe's opening introduction, um, you can notice it's been a bit of time since the 2016 presidential election, and this article is fairly recent. So I want to recognize there's a big gap of time uh, between when we first wrote this article uh, and when it slowly trickled out into places that people can publicly see it in ways that feel... I think particularly limiting uh, when we think about how academic writing tends to filter um, from and, and disseminated uh, for, for the public to receive. I think there's some real challenges for us to think about around that. I mean, I wanna come back to that temporality piece in a second. Um, but I, I kinda wanna hit on, on four brief points around this. Maybe, they'll be, maybe those will be fast and I can hold myself to four since, I, since I've declared that as the number. Um, so the first is that this piece started uh, with teachers uh, and it started on the election night as I was watching the results come in that both Elizabeth and myself were receiving text messages and phone calls and emails from friends and classrooms um, about what happens tomorrow now that it's increasingly likely and then became fact that uh, Donald Trump became president. Um, and the questions were particularly around, uh, th there's been rhetoric around a wall, there's been, um, there's been declarations of sexual assault um, made by the president on hidden camera. There'd been a lot of different kinds of harm that had been caused to the general public, right? And this wasn't about politics, but it was about, you know, how do these messages coalesce into the lives of young people and into the lives of teachers in classrooms every day? And so recognizing this as a need that teachers had noted, that's kind of what got the ball rolling on. We want to recognize that there's been harm that's happened in our classrooms, and it happened as tied to politics. And that these feel hard because oftentimes teachers don't feel like they can talk about these things because there's a fear of reprisal, there's a fear of getting fired. And so those, those are like the key tensions around this. Because this started with teachers, this brings up the, the second main thing I wanna talk about, and that is 
uh, that we want to center whose knowledge counts when we write about things like healing and social emotional learning and buzzwords like grit and mindfulness that, you know, people with PhDs pretend like we know something about. Uh, but what we really want to do with this article is emphasize that these, these feelings of hurt and uncertainty and needing to care for one another um, come out of the expertise that teachers and students already have. And so we want to center that. And maybe we can center that in the kinds of conversations that, that emerge from this of how do we draw on what I know rather than having to cite someone and make sure that it's in the proper APA sixth edition format in order for it to count in a journal. Uh, this then brings up, so I wrote this with Elizabeth a couple of years ago, uh, and it took a while to get through the slow machinations of peer review. Um, it was rejected first, I should also just declare this, it was rejected from one journal uh, that was a generalist journal. Uh, and so that, uh, so Elizabeth and I then changed every place where it said teacher uh, and did a find replace and made it English teacher uh, and then put it in a journal for English educators. Um, and so I just want to, I want to kind of recognize uh, the kinds of stumbling blocks that academics oftentimes face in terms of getting work into a general audience. I just want to, I want to acknowledge that piece. Um, but because this was written a long time ago, my sense was by the time this finally comes out, uh, this will be an article that is about a moment in time that we've passed. Uh, and we should just we should use the 2000 election, 2016 election as a reminder of where we were, even though we've progressed, because we always progress in, in really powerful ways. Uh, and as we're talking today, uh, I think that couldn't be further from the truth. Right. I think we're in a place where, you know, in the past couple of weeks, uh, normative conversations around sexual assault, uh, regular discussions around active efforts for voter suppression, um, declarations of an evil mob that's slowly encroaching on the United States from the South, right? Like these are regular things that we're talking about in ways that are fear-mongering potentially, in ways that um, are, are triggering if we want to use, if we want to use different kinds of terminology that makes sense to our students. Um, and so this wasn't uh, the envision the I had of like, we were in the past and we've progressed and we should just be mindful, right? Um, I think we're in a place where we're particularly stuck, uh, which is my last point. Um, of, of the four, and that is that we're stuck. We wrote this article saying we need to figure out how to heal as, as a session. Um, and Elizabeth and I offer some senses of how we can do that. We can, um, we can bear witness to and, and you know, make valid the kinds of voices of teachers and students in our classrooms and recognize them as valid forms of knowledge that oftentimes aren't countered in, uh, counted in educational research. But in terms of what we do on the day-to-day -to, -day to make sure that teachers are helping each other and our students heal, uh, I don't think we have done a very good job in terms of the social-emotional learning practices um, and professional development support, uh, and we haven't prepared teachers for the expectation that this is part of their job, is healing for themselves, for their colleagues, and for their students. And so this is, I'm hoping that as we think about this in the marginal syllabus process up a place for conversation about what do we do right what what does it look like what does what does it mean to be empathetic and act upon that empathy for one another um so as i think i'm, I'm a little bit i feel stuck being, uh if not in the next few minutes then over time through conversation around this piece we can uh we can think about strategies for for moving forward i really appreciate that introduction and uh I mean, I read the article last night, and I think that one thing that struck me is this is our first marginal syllabus conversation of this school year. And, you know, you, the article calls for more expansive conversations among English educators. The original version may have just called for expansive conversations among educators. That's right. We're, we're happy to be, to be a part of the, this expansive conversation. And so I, now I'd like to ask Ramey just to kind of explain a little bit more about the project for those of us, for those listeners who might be unfamiliar and might be interested in learning more. Thanks, Joe. And again, thank you to Ontario for that really uh, timely and significant introduction to the article that you and, and, and Elizabeth wrote together. Um, and so I should say that this is the first webinar in the 2018-19 marginal syllabus. And so I typically give a very short introduction to the project, but because this is the first webinar of a new year of programming, and because a few things have changed as our third iteration, our third year of the marginal syllabus begins, I want to give just a little bit more history, uh, which is to say that the marginal syllabus was started in the 2016-17 school year as a way of bringing educators together in both K-12 and higher ed settings to have conversations about consequential topics. 
to discuss issues of educational equity. And in that first year together, we primarily focused on the intersection of education and educational technology. Last year, we were supported and hosted by the National Writing Project and specifically the Educator Innovator Initiative. And because of that, had a concrete focus around issues of civic engagement and youth civic participation. And the 2017-18 marginal syllabus was called Writing Our Civic Futures. And across the first two years of the marginal syllabus project, we've opened up these online spaces to engage with partner authors, to have conversations in the margins of texts. And again, we do so using an annotation technology that's free and open source called Hypothesis. And as the conversation uh, grows over time, and as the marginal syllabus as a project has grown over time, our partners have expanded. And so it's very exciting that this year, we now work also in collaboration with NCTE, the National Council of Teachers of English, and the partner authors and all of the texts that we'll be reading and discussing come from NCTE journals. And so this year in the 2018-19 marginal syllabus, we're looking at the relationships between literacy and equity and the eight conversations and the 19 partner authors all are writing articles about the importance of literacy and equity. And that to me is very exciting and I'm looking forward to a very robust uh, year of conversation with educators who are interested in these various topics. And with that, I'll just also mention that I found, of course, this article by Ontario and Elizabeth so appropriate to begin this year of marginal syllabus conversation. And I'll just wrap up my comment here by noting that at the end of this piece, um, Ontario and Elizabeth write about the need to locate the political in our work and to locate ourselves within it. And I think that for some educators who are participating in marginal syllabus conversations, these annotation conversations, these annotation conversations in the marginal spaces with perhaps ideas that are marginal to dominant education discourse is a way to locate the political in our own work as educators and to again locate ourselves in that work and in those conversations. Thanks, Ramey. So yeah, and the project, it, we've always called it just kind of like a nerdy book club, right? And the idea that if you're, you know, I, because that was an excellent, you know, background and explanation about partnership and kind of the aims of the work. And really, we want this to be the kind of conversation that might happen in a, you know, a semi-professional book club kind of way. And so as, the, as this article will go live in the next week or so, like a lot of times folks arrive at this webinar with just, you know, their paper copy and some of the, their notes in the margins. And so we talk a little bit about our reading process, but generally we like to just, you know, sur surface people's questions or reactions to the article. And so Sarah's our invited reader today and a colleague of mine from the Denver Writing Project. So we're so happy to have you, Sarah. We want to give you an opportunity, first of all, just to reflect on the article at all, um, in any way you like. And then also because we have Ontario here, it's a unique opportunity to maybe talk with the author, et cetera. So. Thank you. Uh, you know, uh, reading this article um, brings me right back to almost two years ago. And um, so I'll just provide a little bit of context and background of my situation um, as a classroom teacher. And um, I, um, I teach in a, 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 um, a, a, a school where it's, a, it's you know, labeled as a high need school, not that I like the terminology of being of, of labeled, but most of my students, um, basically um, about 65% of my students are language learners. 100% um, of them are first um, generation college students. And um, definitely what we would talk about in terms of, um, you, know, um, you know, marginalized um, communities. Uh, and so in my over two decades of teaching, I would say that the day after the election is in probably the top three or four of the most challenging days that I've had as a classroom teacher. Um, 
the the others were more trauma that affected uh, my community. Um, I was teaching in Littleton, Colorado at the time, and so um, I, I was um, teaching about a mile and a half away when Columbine happened. And so there was that um, situation, and then 9-11. Um, um, one of my students um, lost, um, his father was a pilot in um, on the flight in Pennsylvania. And so immediately, you know, when, when the election was happening, um, and we knew, you know, we, we were knowing the outcome as, as we were going to bed and no one could sleep. And, you know, we start messaging back and forth as teachers. How are we going to process this with, with our students? What are we going to do tomorrow? And, um, you know, we met early in the morning and some teachers, you know, brought in some different texts to read with students um, and just trying to figure out, like, how do we do this? How do we have these conversations? And, of course, you, you want to be there and you're going to be there to support them. And, um, to listen and to cry and to, you know, be angry. Um, and and it, it was very challenging, but so important. And, um, you know, in my classroom, we circled up and we just had circle conversations every single class period and students just, you know, were expressing themselves and talking and we maybe read a little bit and looked at different, um, you know, statistics and data and talked about things and, um, you know, as a classroom teacher, just letting my students know that I will be there to support them and in, in, in anything, um, you know, that they need. Um, but in, in, you know, the aftermath, it's, we're processing and we're still processing from this um, and the outcomes and just to what, you know, Ontario was saying about the, um, you know, all of the harassment and the, uh, you know, the immigration, the wall. Um, I have had students who um, have been, you know, many students who are not documented and students who have had to deal with the um, deportation of family members, um, you know, since the election. And so this is very real. And I think for me as a teacher, um, what this has done for me, it is also just made me feel even more my responsibility to address politics and to be open and to not have to hide who I am or what I believe or to have these open conversations with my students. And um, it feels very, I mean, I, I, it feels just important and um, necessary. And I do feel that for, uh, you know, many years in my, um, in my, career, it's not been an acceptable and appropriate um, topic to have conversations that are very open, you know, with my students about, but I don't feel that way anymore. And um, in, it brings me to also think a little bit about um, a, a, a professional learning experience I had this summer, which is, Ramey was actually with your department um, at the university. Um, I'm um, teaching in the Pathways to Teaching program um, with Dr. Margarita Bianco, where it's um, essentially, um, we're working to um, grow your, you know, more, more teachers of color um, with our students. And so it's a, it's a really amazing um, you know, opportunity to work with students and talk about, like, unpack a lot of these issues related to politics and to education and um, so many um, factors related to all of, of that. And you know, Dr. Bianco said something this summer that, you know, she's like, it's, we, we have to talk about politics, and we do, and it's our responsibility. And so I just feel like it's, it's definitely more validating um, hearing this from, you know, um, variety of, of, of um, you know, I guess, professionals and administrators, leaders, because there is always that risk that I think teachers feel that, you know, you could be, you could get in trouble for what you're, you're doing and saying in your classrooms. Um, I would also just like to say that I think that there's, there are a variety of ways that um, as teachers, we can work to try to, you know, I, I, I see, you know, I'm looking at, um, you know, the article and, you know, when we're, when, you know, talking about like that triage. And so that's in that moment, and what are we trying to figure out um, as we're supporting our students and crying together, um, just like what um, Ontario um, and Elizabeth write in the article. But um, as a result of that, I think it also can, you know, there can be opportunity to put that anger and frustration and um, into action. And so there, it provides opportunity um, as teachers. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, is, a, is also um, important um, in my work. And when I think about the opportunities that the National Writing Project provides with uh, the 
College Career and Community Writers Program and American Creed and all of these different ways for students to um, have the opportunity to engage in um, civic conversation is really important. So um, thank you um, for the opportunity to respond and, um, and, and thank you for, for writing this Ontario and I'm your co-author and also your persistence in getting it published. Um, it's important for teachers. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, I just want to, I want to note uh, a couple of things around, so Sarah, I really appreciate, you know, both hearing the kinds of pedagogical moves that you made the day after the election. And, you know, I think, I think those are really useful for educators to hear the ways those, those steps happen. I also just feel like, so knowing you are, uh, I hate the war language you used to talk about the teaching profession, but as a veteran teacher who spent the time in the trenches, right? Like whatever the language is. So someone who spent a bunch of time and also has built up different kinds of social and cultural capital uh, in the teaching profession, I feel like you get, you get different kinds of opportunities to engage around this work. I probably feel some kind of sense of support in being able to be political in ways that maybe new teachers might not be able to, right? Um, and uh, teachers who might identify in, in ways that are marginalized might not be able to identify, right? So I think, I think those are, so I'm just thinking about our, our audience and recognizing that not everybody might feel the same kind of comfort uh, and geographically as someone who's in a purplish state, maybe, that, well, I guess we'll find out in, in a couple of weeks. Um, but, uh, but people who might be uh, engaging in this conversation who are in much more conservative areas, both of Colorado, but conservative areas of the country, um, really might, dif might, might struggle even agreeing with, uh, with the harm that we might be talking about here, um, let alone its place in our classrooms. And so it, it's just a thing I wanna note uh, that this article isn't to say everybody needs to be a Trump-hating liberal, although I'm probably fine with that. Um, but it's more of an argument that we need to recognize that, as you mentioned, like the politics is a part of like our responsibility in classrooms, right? Like this is a thing we just have to um, address in our classrooms, regardless of, of the fear around it. And I think, and, and the reason I'm bringing up that acknowledgement is if we look at, you know, demographics of who voted for Donald Trump, uh, you know, a majority of white women were a part of that, uh, of that voting demographic. Uh, and so as, as we recognize that, right, we, we should recognize that many teachers who might be viewing this, that might be uh, engaging conversations with us, that might be NCTE members and readers, also are voters um, that have very different viewpoints as us. And this isn't simply to exclude them, but is to think about how do we engage in dialogue for you know, the needs of this country and the needs of our students. So I just wanted you know, a little bit of acknowledgement on that, but I also, I just really appreciate your engagement with, with the work. Yeah, Ontario, thanks for mentioning that. And, and, and Sarah, thanks for bringing all of this up because I, I, I was really struck in reading the piece um, around how Ontario, you and Elizabeth parsed political relationships and said that partisan affiliation or partisan voting is different, although certainly related to and can be quite consequential in relationships to, again, the lived experiences of students and teachers in schools every day. And I thought that, you know, just from a kind of craft of writing perspective, I really appreciated how, as you just noted, there may be people who watch this webinar, there may be people who read your article, or that who then subsequently engage in our annotation conversations who in their day-to-day -day have a very different partisan political experience. And that does not then preclude that they don't also honor the experiences of the students in their classrooms. And for me, in reading this piece, there was a passage that again stood out to me that I thought was very powerful in that regard. When you and Elizabeth write about the fact that students, and, and I'm quoting here, that students of all ages carry with them into school the myriad worries, ideas, and oft-repeated phrases that they hear whether it's on television, you talk about our websites or neighborhoods, and that it's then because of that that they perhaps are experiencing or have experienced various forms of trauma, are in need of or can contribute to aspects of healing. And so I just thought, again, that there was a really nice distinction in the piece. And I hope in our conversations about this piece in the future that there is a distinction between, yes, there are consequences to the partisan political lives that we live, and that does not ignore the fact that there are day-to-day -day realities Sarah has spoken to in this conversation that are going to just be there and if we're not also engaging with those we're certainly not doing real justice to ourselves our students our the families etc 
Yeah, I, sorry, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think I think we get hung up on politics meaning the partisan, right? As if those two p words are are the same, right? And I think that's I think that's just a real I think it's just a real danger with how we think about civic life in the United States right now as as one danger. And if we and I think issues that shouldn't have to be political have become politicized, right? So that that we have we have whole dumb conversations in on popular media about civility in, in a place where you know our policies are if we're talking about being marginalized and about a marginal syllabus right we are having mar people who have traditionally been marginalized being written out of existence according to certain kinds of uh lgbt uh policies that are being um floated in the media right right now uh, and so what does it mean um to talk about politics when it's about someone's entire identity right and and someone's um to exist within the United States uh, as, as a legally recognized individual, right? As, as one kind of context of, is, is that even political at this point, right? And what is the space to have these conversations that have become, uh, you know, professionally fraught within, within classrooms today? It just feels like a part of this, right? And likewise, I think uh, we, when we talk about immigration and we talk about the wall, right, as the kind of rhetoric and buzzwords around this, it's not just that some of our students might or might not have be be seen as legal in the eyes of the United States, uh, but it's that this this entire idea of legality as defining who a person is uh, shapes how we understand who people are in our country uh, and shapes the well-being of young people. Not to mention the many dreamers who are currently teachers in our schools today uh, and the family members, right? That this and sorry, just the other the other layer to this is we tend to talk about this. Sarah, I'm glad you brought back the triage word. We tend to talk about this as what do we do to help kids, right? Because because kids need to feel supported and healing. Um, but as teachers, and Sarah, you mentioned this, like this has been super stressful and exhausting uh, and trauma inducing for uh, you know the adults in the room who who do this every day and attend to the needs of young people. And we don't we haven't been taught. Uh, particularly useful ways uh, to provide self-care right, or care for one another. I think that's like, a, when I say I'm stuck, like this is a big part of the gap as someone who's been teaching pre-service teachers over the summer, we don't have time in a very busy credentialing program um, for the, how do you check in with yourself and make sure you have the emotional literacy piece, right? That, that doesn't fit with all of the ed TPA and the million other things that are happening at any given time uh, to fit in with the high stakes accountability system of, you know, reinforcing settler colonialism. I think that's, I think those are some real challenges that we face. Right, I'm going to mute myself because I'm rambling. I, um, yes to everything <laughs> um, that, um, every, uh, you know, all of you are saying um, and sharing. And I think that um, I, I was, you know, kind of just looking again um, you know, that the, an, an audience of this or, uh, you know, important um, role was what you just brought up as well, Ontario, that we are, um, many of us in situations where we are teaching pre-service teachers. Um, I teach a methods course and um, I uh, work with pre-service teachers as well and I have for many years. And I think that this is, yes, we have to think about our students, ourselves in our schools, but then also here are, you know, so, so many people um, that are entering this profession. And in this political climate, in um, a time that's very, I mean, similarities and differences from when I started my teaching career many years ago. And, um, and you think about, um, it, you know, I guess one thing I've, I've been thinking about a lot lately is the curriculum demands and expectations placed on so many teachers um, based on, you know, district curriculums or, um, you know, kind of mandates and expectations. And, you know, some of them, they don't have a lot of wiggle room. And so it's, um, you know, how, how, how do we, how do I work to support pre-service teachers in helping them build agency and feeling like they have the space and, um, you know, to, to have these conversations with their students or to address this and to even, and I don't know, it has to do with um, their, the way they're teaching, what they're teaching, how they're teaching it. Um, and so I think that this is just an important layer to um, recognize as well. And I don't have any answers, but um, I do, uh, I mean, I do encourage pre-service teachers, like, you know, that 
they, you got to find your people <laughs> and, and your support. And I think that I feel really fortunate in my, um, in my teaching context that I have been supported by administrators. And I know that not all teachers have that, but I do believe that it's there. And so maybe even if you don't have it right away or in one, one context, that you need to keep seeking that out because it's there, um, even though it's not always easy. And we can't give up because our students deserve the best. I love that. I think you, you remind me that uh, both, like I, I feel like I get a sense of hopefulness in getting to work with pre-service teachers. And it always makes me wonder, you know, what does it mean to want to become a teacher within this regime of high stakes testing and within all of these other kinds of restrictive ways of what we're defining? Like, what does it mean to, what do we assume teaching means to, to go into this profession? Right? And if we're going to take seriously the knowledge and expertise of, of teachers today, I think we should learn, you know, how are, how are we learning? How are we coping? How are we thriving um, as, as different kinds of ways of being? So it's really helpful. Appreciate it. And how to support one another. Um, and so like some of, you know, our, like our responsibility in, in, in our buildings or in our, you know, in, in our work with the pre-service teachers to provide that support. And, um, and it's, you know, even if it's just like there to be a listening ear to do some brainstorming with or figure out ways to, you know, adapt a lesson or the curriculum, um, it's going to be more responsive to students um, and to help them work through, you know, some of these pretty challenging issues. Well, if I can just jump in again, and I don't mean to be kind of too, to suggest something that is too simplistic. Um, I, I do want to return perhaps to the point that's been made earlier about feeling a bit stuck and, and trying to have a sense of what to do. Um, and I'm not trying to suggest that there's, you know, easy answers to any of this. In any case, let me just point out that one of, again, one of my favorite sentences from this, from this reading uh, was a way that uh, Ontario, you and Elizabeth, noted uh, that by not discussing, as you said, the social fallout after the election was essentially a, a denial of the full humanity of students in school. And there was this direct connection between the idea that discussion and honoring full, the full humanity of students is part and parcel. And I think that that's so radical in some respects, that the idea of, of, of allowing people to to you know, speak their mind, to speak their truth, perhaps to speak their truth to power, and then to have a reception, to listen to, and to hear that, and then to then have that turn into a discussion, and that the way of recognizing the full humanity of one another, particularly, Ontario, given what you just said, in the kind of accountability regime that define the current institutionalized reality of this American education system in this particular moment, suggests that these acts of discussion of speaking, of listening, of talking, of debating, and doing so in a way that is respectful and perhaps sustaining is itself a way of honoring humanity. And I don't mean to kind of come off as a, as a naive, you know, let's just all talk and get along. But I just do, I do think that there was something quite beautiful about uh, the way in which you linked discussion and humanity in this piece. And maybe that gives us an opening uh, for some of that hopefulness. Yeah, and I, I will just, I will link this to some of Elizabeth's, you know, leading expertise in, in the field of English ed and, and literacies around um, witnessing and, and testimony as a form of, of, of exactly what you're talking about, right? That this idea of, I'm going to experience and understand and hear and see your full humanity as you share it within our classroom. Um, as a means for better understanding the world, right? And if your humanity, um, she, I think an example we share here is from you know one person sharing their experiences in uh, re in relation to Hurricane Katrina and in, in relation to large you know um, large uh, disasters, uh, and thinking about you know who is this individual in my classroom? How are these um, feelings tied to larger forces that can feel insurmountable, uh, uncontrollable, and how does that relate to the relationships in my classroom? Uh, and I think. So both offering as uh, in this framework, uh, as offering testimony, right, to my own experience. And these could be things that could, uh, could exist as part of the marginal syllabus, right? Uh, you know, sharing my own and being seen within the spaces of, of the margins, right? Quote, unquote, the margins, um, but, but amplifying them beyond um, marginalized spaces, uh, allowing people to, to share their own experiences and, and open those up might be one place of, Rather, knowing that we've all felt stuck, right? Knowing, um, 
knowing that as a place to start, we could say instead of here's, here's the three points that are solutions, right? Because that's just not going to happen. We can instead say, you know, we can, we can weave a, a set of interlinked experiences from very different perspectives and at least come up with some kinds of collective empathy, some kinds of perspective from which to broaden our vocabulary, right? I actually, I actually think that those kinds of language practices are important. This is all, you know, from like a boring research hat, this comes from like a Dewey instance of, you know, in me being able to understand you and you being able to understand me, not only are we both transformed, but, you know, the interdynamics around us also get transformed through our own intrapersonal growth, right? Like I think there's, I think there's some real, you know, big P politic uh, possibilities through all of this as well, to use, to use P words. Joe, I think we can't hear you. Sorry. Well, all right, in any case, I think Joe's having a little technical difficulties. I'm just going to kind of, oh, there we are, Joe. Oh, is that better? Yeah, there you go. Oh, it was my cool headphones were the problem. So, uh, isn't that terrific? So, I did have a point I was going to make. Oh, my point was, I appreciate Ontario alluding to what might happen in the margins, in the marginal syllabus. And I think that, um, for me, listening to this conversation, I thought it was really powerful, Sarah's reflection on the days after the election that were provoked by Ontario's writing here. And the idea that this project, you know, one of the things we think might be great is if those types of reflections started to permeate the margins of this text so people could share them. Because I also kind of like made notes about what that morning was like for me, you know, and I thought about, um, I thought about two students in particular who always talked sports and came into class together and they loved, you know, and it was just really natural for them to talk about, Oh, your team lost my team won, And I would, you know, I would often jump in on, Oh yeah, I bet you're really sad today because your team lost and my team won. And on this day, there was one student in particular who was in the minority in my school um, because he was excited that Trump had won and his and his friend, who talked football with him every morning, a Latino boy, was kind of explaining to him that they weren't going to have the same type of conversation about this. And I really appreciated it that morning, just because he was always, he was a fun student to have anyway, but he was just very gentle about like, hey, we're not going to joke about it like that today. And, and then probably, I can't even remember what I had planned in class that morning, but one of the young African-American girls who sat in the front of the room just stopped whatever I wanted to say as an initial, as an initial thing in class. And she said, we need to know how you feel about this. And so I remember just having to say like, you know, I'd probably thought about it, but I remember being put on the spot by a junior at school who was upset because of the way women were portrayed by Donald Trump. And she needed to know where I stood. And I think that that, it allowed me to think about like the way this was impacting different groups. And as much as I might've been frustrated, frustrated by the results of the election, I really had to stop and think like, Oh, Jose's coming from a different place than me. And so is this other student in the front. And so it was just immediate to me that different people, whether I was, you know, an upset Democrat that day, there were different considerations around the room. Joe, that was definitely something that I had to unpack um, a little bit as well with my students. Um, and you know, Ontario, you know, talked before about the fact that um, when you looked at a lot of the um, voter 
um, like the breakdown of who was voting and, um, you know, so many white women voted for Trump. Um, one of the things that we did with, I did with my students that day, I think I mentioned it, but I wasn't very specific about it, is that there was an article on the New York Times, in the New York Times, um, the day after, and it really broke down um, all of the, uh, you, you know, um, by race, gender, um, where people are living, um, education level of, you know, who voted for, um, you know, what candidates. And that was something that was, you know, really, uh, uh, it was, it was, it was a really important, you know, I think part of our conversation that day and the days after to look at that data and to, you know, try to make sense of some of it or not. But in a way it was also a call to action to my students because they, um, they, they're like next, this next election, we can vote. You know, and so they, it was it was motivating for many of them as well um, in a way that um, I think is, um, is is very important. So. So I'm curious maybe to ask a question of, you know, our readers and our participants here and particularly perhaps Ontario and Sarah around where you would perhaps see this conversation progressing. We're about to open this conversation to educators who, because of interest, because of their questions, maybe because of their experiences, or because they have a curiosity about the kinds of ideas around healing and trauma and presence and testimony that are surfaced in this article that they're gonna find themselves reading and participating in this conversation. And I'd just be curious to perhaps hear, I know it's a little perhaps speculative, um, where you anticipate there being some perhaps provocative points or conversation or where you see some of that marginal space coming to life um, when, as educators watch this, they may also choose to join the conversation online or where you hope to see some of those ideas unpacked. So I'll offer a couple of things that I would love to, so one, I love disagreement anyways, right? I think, I think you get it a lot as an academic, right? You're, you're, uh, so I would love to, to see where people don't necessarily agree with this. I, I, think, I think that is healthy, right? Um, I think I tend to sit in echo chambery places when I talk about education, so I feel comfortable being able to engage in certain kinds of language practices around you know, what I get to say and to get pushback is useful. Um, particularly if we're going to take seriously moving forward these pieces. But I think more importantly, what I'm interested in is I think we need to broaden a vocabulary professionally around what do we mean by healing? What does healing look like in your classroom? What does healing look like for your students and for you and for uh, administrators? Um, I think we're being co-opted as a field by particularly narrow definitions of things like mindfulness that come from like a Lululemon white middle-class perspective of what these words might mean. Uh, and I think we're in, we have an opportune time um, to hear from, you know, hopefully like a large diverse set of people professionally, politically, personally, culturally uh, to, to shape how we understand uh, big lofty words and try to put some kinds of um, uh, specificity to what they look like when they're when they're taken up and, and enacted in classrooms. So, what does healing look like? What does uh, what does it mean to uh, what do politics look like in your classroom? What kinds of tensions are surfaced? And I'll just say, if you're if you're a teacher or an educator who's working in a space where you read an article like this and you say that it does sound important, but I, I'd never be able to do that in my context. And I can imagine uh, I, I sit in the liberal bubble of Silicon Valley. Uh, and I can imagine there are plenty of teachers here who feel the exact same way, despite the fact of, of where we are. Um, and so I don't, I don't mean this by just per, by geography. So you might feel like this based on your career, like you, you might be a newer teacher. And so if you're a person who feels like you can't engage in this kind of work, I'd love for the, the, the annotations to be a place to talk about why that is and what are the kinds of little moves towards bigger kinds of actions. That would be, you know, a wish for me to see, you know, what, what would it mean to engage in this in ways that feel safe and to slowly move and agitate beyond traditional forms of safety. Yeah, to build, to build on um, just briefly um, what, what Ontario was saying, as a, as a classroom teacher, I would, um, I think it's very, you recognize something so important that, you know, 
disagreement is good and um, and healthy and it's important for us to all share ideas and perspectives and maybe how it's, it changes depending on our teaching context. But I'd also just love to hear how um, other teachers have have responded to this um, or, or other situations and how they are um, providing a space and time for students to uh, maybe engage in discourse around um, these issues and um, maybe turning it, turning it into different learning moments and ex um, experiences for their students. I think that we could all benefit from hearing from one another um, in, in response to um, this article and these ideas. Yeah, and I think, I agree. I love the idea that, um, particularly as, you know, the article calls for an expansive conversation in English classrooms, I would love to hear English teachers, you know, um, grapple with that notion of, of becoming more political or, you know, maybe even push back on the notion that they have to be political because of what's happening, you know. Um, and then I'm curious also, you know, returning to my notes, about the notion of uh, how we create anti-oppressive classrooms. And I wonder, I wonder myself, you know, how much the status quo, because as this, I mean, I just feel like we're fortunate as English teachers that we ended up with your article, right? And so the idea that like, um, you know, to what degree is the status quo and traditional form of instruction, you know, not, not helping us in, in creating anti-oppressive classrooms, or to what degree does that sort of, um, contribute to oppressive classrooms. So how about this? One other thing is I'm curious if anyone wants to just comment, first of all, any other questions for Ontario, because I really, I really appreciate the um, Ontario, the, the role you've taken in this conversation as we kind of near the, near the close of it. Um, so we've certainly had an opportunity to hear from the author and, and interact with the author. And I wonder just in terms of like our reading processes as we go, as we went through this article, is there anything noteworthy in terms of like, how you were reading to prepare for this conversation or how you were sort of, you know, making notes as you thought about what you might make public as a result. Is there anything we want to comment on in terms of process or certainly if we want to get a last question with Ontario or a last, you know, big thought. Well, I guess one thing I'll mention, because I think this has come up, it came up earlier, both working with pre-service teachers and the hope, and also maybe some of the complexity in supporting future educators and engaging with these kinds of perspectives. I'd just be curious to hear from uh, either Sarah Ontario or others around the ways in which we might create either connections to formal spaces, how we bring these kinds of conversations into pre-service classrooms, and how we might choose to do so, uh, and also the ways in which we create more uh, interest-driven, perhaps uh, more even personal connections that then bring people into the conversation based upon a curiosity or based upon a kind of burning question. And so maybe as we kind of, again, wrap this up a little bit, uh, we talk about what are some of the moves that we might make as facilitators of this kind of a conversation, particularly when it concerns uh, future educators. I think one starting place is uh, to to share this article, um, and so I'm just I'm thinking right now um, that this is it's it's something that I'm going to share with the methods course I'm teaching um, with the pre-service teachers right now, uh, and um, to even just I think it's important to open up the dialogue and just to you know, to um, hear some of their perspectives and the different um, teaching situations that they're in. And, um, you know, th they, they will have perspective. And I think it's just, it's a, it's a, um, it'll be um, valuable to open that dialogue with, um, with pre-service teachers. Yeah, and I would just add to that, that both with pre-service teachers and for teachers who are thinking about bringing this into their classrooms, I think those classrooms are of all ages, right? I think this is a K-12, K post-secondary uh, kind of conversation uh, that it's not, 
So if you are the facilitator, you are facilitating and not the center of that conversation. And that also might mean uh, modeling, right? So if we're, if we're trying to get at the heart of some of these bigger questions, it probably starts with things like storytelling and reflection uh, and grounding it in the personal rather than in the theoretical. And so I would start there with student, I think very simple and with pre-service student teachers, uh, I, I would serve very simple kinds of prompts of, you know, tell me about a time when, or how do you feel when, right? Uh, and knowing that if we're asking for vulnerability from our young people, right, we should also be willing to be vulnerable ourselves and make sure that before any of that happens, we've set up a, a space that feels um, that we can at least feel comfortable being uncomfortable once in a while, right? I'm wary to say, say I'm wary to say um, that it's always going to be comfortable, but that it will always be a, a safe space to an extent, right? That we can, we can set up... Um, structures and facilitation in order to make that happen, right? I think, I think we tend to think about, you know, what those kinds of norm building practices look like in classrooms. Uh, and I think, uh, Rami and Joe, you've done a good job of kind of implicitly doing those uh, in the online space of a place like the, the marginal syllabus. And so I just want to also recognize that as we're talking about building up these conversations where people might be vulnerable, and that that might also happen in a public space like the annotation, uh, annotation that could happen around uh, some of the articles for the marginal syllabus, just also for others to be mindful of, you know, how do we engage and recognize hearing somebody uh, when you're not engaged in synchronous face-to-face -face conversations. So just recognizing digital platform is another place where those conversations will happen. Well, I sure appreciate everyone's contributions. And that's one of the things about this project is we can just never thank the, the author partners enough because just naming what they do in terms of allowing their, you know, their work to be, you know, the center of these conversations and then invite um, annotations from interested participants. Um, we just can't thank our authors enough. So maybe we've thanked Ontario enough though. Ontario might be the one exception. We might've thanked you plenty. So anywho, but thanks again to everyone for joining me. And so now, um, we're here at CLTV. We've been talking marginal syllabus and I want to let everyone know that electing to heal will be available for annotation throughout the month of November at educatorinnovator.org. And then you can join us again in early December for the next article and author discussion. So for updates, subscribe to our blog and sign up for our monthly newsletter at educatorinnovator.org. Follow us on Twitter at, at innovates underscore ed and follow the hashtag marginal syllabus. Good day, everyone.